scripture will be Jeremiah 6, verse 16. That's Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they say, we will not walk in it. Good evening and welcome again. We're glad that you're here tonight. We're very thankful for such a beautiful day. We want to wish all of our mothers a very special and happy day. We're very grateful for you. We appreciate so much your love and encouragement. As I said this morning, we are very grateful for you and we want you to know how much we do love and appreciate each of you. No doubt the world has been made better by mothers and so we're very glad, we're very glad to know that you mean so much to us. We're going to be looking tonight at the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet. He began his prophecy on the eve of Babylonian captivity. God's people, as you know, had been disobedient, and so God threatened exile. And ultimately, God deported his people into the land of Babylon for some 70 years, they would return in about 539 B.C. But Jeremiah sought to plead with God's people. He sought to encourage them to come back to Almighty God. And as we look at Jeremiah chapter 6, and we'll look at a couple of other statements from other chapters, we really see a nation on the brink of disaster. And as I thought about this lesson, one of the things that occurred to me is the fact that any individual, nation, or congregation for that matter, that lives in rebellion to God faces disaster. And so what we want to do is strive to the best of our ability to walk within the good way and the right pathway. And so tonight we look at Jeremiah chapter 6, and I think first of all, it would be helpful for us to note the relationship that Israel sustained to God. So we want to think about their relationship to the Lord. And Jeremiah defines the relationship that God's people enjoyed with him down through the ages. And it's interesting to me that in chapter 3, verse 14, that God said through the prophet Jeremiah to ancient Israel, I am married to you. Now we think about the closeness that two people enjoy in the context of marriage and the sacredness of that union. And God was saying in the long ago to the nation of Israel, look, you are a very special people to me. I am married to you. I would remind you that those of us that have obeyed the gospel according to Romans chapter seven, verse four, that we are said to be married to Christ. And Jesus, as you well know, is looked upon in the New Testament as the bridegroom. We as members of the body of Christ, we are called the bride. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, John said, the bride has made herself ready. And so that's the beautiful relationship that is pictured for us in the New Testament, underscoring this intimate relationship that we have with Almighty God. Two things I want to share with you as we think about the fact that these people were married to the Lord. 
First of all, we need to understand God's covenant with Israel. You go back to the book of Exodus and you read of God delivering the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. In Exodus chapter 19, God said, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptian people. He said, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. Then he goes on to say, now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be unto me a special treasure above all people, for all the earth is mine. He said, you will be a kingdom of priests unto me and a holy nation. God then instructed Moses to go and to relay these words unto the children of Israel. And so in verse 8 of chapter 19, the people of Israel, that is the children of Israel, responded by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, that will we do. Now, God entered, as I said a moment ago, into a covenant relationship with his people. That covenant was conditional. It was predicated on their willingness to honor his word. Again, Moses wrote, if you obey my word and keep my covenant, then you will be unto me a special treasure above all people, for all the earth is mine. And so they had this very special relationship. They had been wedded to the Lord. But then I want you to think with me about, in the second place, God's care for his people. Over and over again, we read about God's care, God's concern for his people. And I, I would simply say this, that God's care for his people has always been present. You can go back and look at any dispensation of time. God has always cared for his people. Those who lived under the period of the patriarchs, God cared for them. God was concerned about their condition. Look at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they transgressed the law of God, what did God do? Immediately, he intervened on their behalf and set forth what we typically call the promised seed of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now granted, that plan was in place before the foundation of the world. John talks about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world in Revelation 13, 8. But again, that underscores God's care and God's concern for the human family. Under the Mosaic dispensation, again, over and over again, God talks about his concern for his people. And then in the New Testament, same message. God cares for his people. I love the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, where Peter said, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. So God is concerned about his people. He cares for his people. But there are two things that I believe suggest that God truly cares for his people. And in the days of Jeremiah, God set forth his care for his people through the words of the prophet. If you go back and look at chapter 2, verse 7, first of all, we think about God's bountiful provisions. And again, we go back to the land of Egypt. God's people, they had been in Egyptian bondage. And what did God do? Well, God brought them out of Egyptian bondage. As Moses recorded in Exodus chapter 19, God bore them on eagles' wings. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 7, God said to these people, he said, I brought you into a bountiful country. Some translations may say into a good country to eat of its fruit and its goodness. But he said, when you entered, what did you do? He said, you defiled my land. He said, you made my heritage an abomination. God had truly blessed his people. If you go back and you look at the book of Exodus and you see the cries of the people, 
unto Jehovah God. God said, look, I have seen your tears, I have heard your cries, and what was God going to do? He came down to rescue them out of bondage. And so, the bountiful provisions of Almighty God, and again, we talk about God's bountiful provisions. I, I, I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 68, 19, when he said, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. Every individual that has ever walked the, the planet of the earth ought to have something to be grateful for. God in heaven has been so good to us. But then, note if you would, his boundless love. We talk about his bountiful provisions, but also his boundless passion, his boundless love. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse three, here's what God said unto the children of Israel. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now, I said a moment ago, the children of Israel, they were pictured as being married to God. When two individuals enter into the marital relationship, there ought to be love that, that permeates that relationship. There ought to be a sense of love that permeates or underscores the uniting of two people into one, as Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 19. I understand that love is a learned process, that, that we learn to love people, and there are characteristics and traits of love. But God said to the children of Israel, look, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God will always love those of us who belong to the human family. Granted, the children of Israel, they were his special people. They enjoyed a covenant relationship with him. And God had lavished upon them tremendous blessings and great love. But look at, look at us today. We talk about the fact that we are married to Christ. We belong to the Lord. We are, we are a part of his divine body. Is there any time in your life that God will not love you? The answer is no. There's not a person on this earth that will ever get to a point in time where God will say, I do not love that individual. God will always love you. He may not like what you're doing. He may loathe your lifestyle, but God will always love you. And God loved these people, despite their disobedience. And certainly in the book of Jeremiah, their disobedience is well chronicled. So we, we talk about their relationship to the Lord. But there's a second thing I want you to note with me, if you would. And this has to do with their recklessness before the Lord. And now we really come to their disobedience, the fact that they were disobedient before Almighty God. And there's some traits that are spelled out by Jeremiah in chapter 6 that I believe underscore their spirit, their rebellious attitude. First of all, I would suggest unto you that these people were careless. When you think about somebody who is careless, what comes to mind? What I, what I typically think about is somebody who is negligent. They, they, they fail to pay attention to important things. Well, here were some people that failed to pay attention to what we would call some important things. And the important things we're talking about are God's word. So with that in mind, let me give you two traits of their careless disposition. First of all, they failed to delight in the word of God. Look, if you would, at verse 10 of chapter 6. Jeremiah writes, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Now, just ask yourself, how could these people that enjoyed such an intimate relationship with God get to a point 
where the word of the living God was a reproach to them and where their attitude was, we don't like it. We do not delight in it. Contrast their sentiments to some of the statements made by the psalmist in Psalm 19 where the psalmist talked about how he loved the law of Jehovah more than silver and gold. How he would say in the long ago, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Here were people that had been entrusted with the very will of God. They had been blessed with God's holy word. And what did they do? They scorned it. They turned their backs on it. They, they didn't care for it. God had given them vertical and horizontal commands, commands that would have blessed them richly. And yet they chose to ignore those commands. Now, if you look over in chapter 7, and I would suggest that when people do not delight in God's word, the end result of that is disobedience. And so look at, look at chapter 7, verse 22. In verse 22, Jeremiah said, speaking on behalf of God, I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. You remember just a moment ago I said that God gave unto the children of Israel vertical and horizontal commands? Those commandments were intended to be a blessing to their lives. If they would honor the word of God, he would bless them. If they disobeyed his word, he promised to curse them. Well, God said, if you'll obey my, my law, if you'll keep my ways, what will happen? He said, it'll be well with you. But look at verse 24. He said, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart. Somewhat reminiscent of the people who lived during the days of the judges. In Judges 21, 25, God said of his people, in, in those days there was no king in Israel. During the period of the judges, there was not a king per se. The first king that we know about was King Saul. But the people of God, they would disobey him and then they would cry out for relief. He would raise up a judge to deliver them and they would live faithfully for a period of time and then what would happen? They would go back into sin and then God would raise up an oppressor. Over and over again, this cycle repeats. And so those people did not have a, a king per se. But God said in those days, there was no king in Israel. The king that they had was not a physical king sitting on a physical throne, but rather it was God in heaven. And what, what the writer is saying is they, they removed themselves from the presence of God. They were not going to honor God as their king. And so in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. In other words, the standard is what you think. It's what you want to do. They walked in what? The counsels and imagination of their evil heart. We live in a day and time in which people today think that they can do as they please. They are the ultimate standard. They are the absolute standard. Well, you and I, we believe that Scripture is the divine standard, that we're not left to just do as we please. But here were people that walk, were walking in the counsels and imagination of their evil heart. Now look at what he says. And they went backward and not forward. Sometimes forward progress is backward. Somebody might ask the question, what do we mean? In order for us to progress 
in the eyes of God, we've got to go back and honor his word. Look, look at some of the problems that we face in our, in our country tonight. We talk about a people who did not delight in the law of Almighty God. They didn't delight in the word of God. Hosea, in Hosea chapter 8 at verse 12, here's what the prophet said to the children of Israel. He said, I have written unto them the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. How could that have been the case? Was it not the case that God said through Moses to teach your children diligently about me in Deuteronomy chapter 6? The answer is a resounding yes. They were to have been taught and instructed in the will of Almighty God. The problem was they failed to execute his will in their lives. And thus what happened? Well, they became unfaithful. And so here Jeremiah is talking about people who are going backward and not forward. Again, we, we, we talk about our society. Look at the forward progress of 21st century mankind. How many of us want to go back to what is called the good old days? I mean, I understand that there are some, there are some things about the past that, that were good and refreshing. And from the vantage point of nostalgia, we like to think about them. But I'm grateful to live in a day and time when we have modern technology, communication at its zenith. I'm thankful for the advances in medical science, for travel, etc. We've made great advances, technologically and materially speaking, but from a moral vantage point and a spiritual vantage point, we've gone backward. We're not where we ought to be as a nation. And when God looked at the children of Israel, when he looked at the southern kingdom of Judah, he's saying to these people, look, instead of going forward, instead of doing what I have asked you to do, instead of being faithful to me, you've gone backward. And so, unfortunately, God's people have demonstrated that tendency in days gone by. So they didn't delight in the word of God. A second, I think, characteristic of their careless nature is the fact that they falsely declared the word of God. Drop down and look at verse 14. In verse 14, we read about those prophets of old who were saying, peace, peace, and Jeremiah said, when there is no peace. You see, the problem was there were false prophets in the days of Jeremiah, and what they were trying to do was say to the children of Israel, look, you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about captivity. I mean, Jeremiah be, may be telling you, you're going into captivity, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. What they were trying to say is there is peace on the horizon and God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah, there is no peace. When people do not appreciate the word of God, when they fail to delight in the word of God, they are prey for any and everything. You remember the apostle Paul talked about those who are tossed to and fro and cared about with every wind of doctrine? If you're not grounded in the truth of Almighty God, if you don't know what the Bible teaches... You are subject to falling from your steadfastness. The Bible talks about not being carried away from your own steadfastness. If we're not grounded in the truth of Almighty God, when, when people ask you, what do you believe? 
You need to be able to tell them. And when they ask you, why do you believe that? You need to have enough conviction to be able to say, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. God said it, and ultimately that settles it. As Peter said, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Be ready to give an answer, a defense to every man that asks you of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Now John in 1 John chapter 4 said, beware of false prophets. And, and the reason was because they plagued the people of God in the first century. They plagued the people of God during the days of Jeremiah. They're a problem today. How, what's, what's the remedy? Well, just know what the Bible says. Be grounded in the word of God so that as the Hebrew writer said, you can discern between good and evil. John talks about in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There's something that's called truth. There's something called error. There's a right way, a wrong way, a correct way, an incorrect way, etc. But these people were careless. Let me give you a second characteristic of these people. Not only were they careless, but the Bible says they were covetous. Look at verse 13. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Now let me, let me just make this observation. When you have so-called religious people who are not what they ought to be, you've got problems. You see, the ultimate standard is the word of God. But as the people of God, we are to be a model. We are to be a representation of God's law. We, we are to demonstrate the kind, of, the kind of lives that God would be pleased with. Here is Jeremiah and he's saying, look, we've got a real problem with covetousness among our people. Now, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesses. I know that you and I believe what the Bible teaches. And we, we understand that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. God has lavished upon us so many blessings. And if you were to look at at the median income in this country compared to other countries around the world, we would be considered filthy rich. That's just the bottom line. We are rich indeed. And one of the things that, one of the things that I think we need to understand is that God does not intend for us to hoard the things that he entrusts into our care. The tornadoes that touched down over the southeast and we've been privileged to give to some of the brethren in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It may be the case that you've sent money to other places. I'm extremely grateful to those of you that have given from your bank account to those people down in Tuscaloosa. But I want to appeal to you. It is a blessing to give. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Those who have a problem with covetousness are not interested in giving. They're interested in getting. Now, there are a lot of good works. 
And it takes money, whether we like it or not, it takes money to operate the work of the church. It takes money to engage in acts of benevolence. And we can say one of two things. Number one, we can say, I'll help, or number two, I'm not going to help. Those are the two options. I would, I would encourage you to give to those who are less needy. And as we think about this problem of covetousness, do, please do not think that just because we are members of the body of Christ that covetousness is not a problem. There are times when, unfortunately, we have the idea that what God has entrusted into our care is ours and ours alone. Listen, we are but stewards of that which we possess. I promise you, when you depart this life, you will not take $1 bill with you. They can line your coffin with $100 bills, but guess what? You will never spend one, not one. We can't take it with us. Paul said we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. If you think you can take your land, your home, your automobile, your bank accounts with you, you are sadly mistaken. Read about some of the pharaohs in Egypt and go back and look, and look at some of the lavish adornments of their tombs. I mean, they had everything in their tombs. And guess what? Robbers came in and pilfered those tombs. They didn't use what, what had been left behind for them in the next life. And so here were people that were covetous. And then there's a third characteristic I believe they demonstrated. They were without a conscience. Look, if you would, at verse 15. In verse 15, the prophet asked the question, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed nor did they know how to blush. When we talk about the conscience, the Bible has a lot to say about the conscience. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul talks about how he had served God with a pure conscience. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, the writer there talks about how he trusts that we have a good conscience. I believe that the conscience is a result of Almighty God. We talk about some of, the, some of the arguments for design. Well, man is a creature made in the image and the likeness of God. And housed within man is a conscience. Now, I understand that that conscience has to be properly guided. But there is, as has been said before, a sense of ought and a sense of ought not. In other words, there is this built-in conscience and it's built into everyone. And to some extent, there is this, this reasoning process where we can understand and we know that something is either, is either good or bad. It's either right or wrong. Now again, the conscience has to be guided, but there are, there are two possibilities with regard to the conscience. The first possibility is you have a sensitive conscience. And I'm grateful for people who have a sensitive conscience. Individuals who have a sensitive conscience 
conscious are those who are desirous of doing what God says. And they're very conscientious. They have a strong desire to do what's right. They are striving to the best of their ability to walk in the light, to live in accordance with the will of God. They understand their faults, their frailties. They acknowledge them and they move on. And, and, and there's a reason for that. Because they're staying close to God. They're allowing the word of God to guide them in this life. As the psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway in Psalm 119, 105. And so, here are people that have a sensitive conscience. I think about people that will sometimes come forward and they'll ask for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for them because they may, maybe have shortcomings in their life or they haven't, they've said or done something that they shouldn't have. And so they want people to pray for them. That is, that is an example of a sensitive conscience, conscience. But on the flip side of that, we have what is called the seared conscience. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about how in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. He said, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. If you take a hot iron and brand an animal, for example, a cow, the nerve endings in that animal become, well, they lack any kind of feeling. They are, to put it, well, to put it biblically, they're seared. Well, that's what happens to the conscience. When, when you delve into a life of sin and you, you just get, get so caught up in a life outside the will of God, you lose sight of your moorings. And that sense of ought and ought not becomes seared. And there are people that, as Jeremiah said, get to a point in time in life when they no longer have the ability to blush. There used to be a day and time in our country when people would blush when something was said or done in their presence. I remember hearing men use profanity in front of women and then apologize. And it would make women blush. Listen, we're living in a day and time today when women can out-curse men. I mean... You talk about a gutter mouth. That, that's just one example. And, and really what happens is people become desensitized. I, I think about the evolution of television and how Hollywood has just continually bombarded us with filthy language, sexual innuendo, false concepts, and what happens? It's, it's, it's this erosion effect. And before you know it, we can see something that is blatantly wrong. It, it, it ought to be one of these things where this siren is going off and we're saying, wait a minute, that's wrong, that's not right, we need to do something about it, but what happens? We sit there and take it in and we watch it or we listen to it. We feed on it. And, and we're not embarrassed. Well, 
That was the plight of God's people. Now, Jeremiah asked the question, were they ashamed when they had committed these abominations? He said, no, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. I want you to think with me now. We've, we've talked about their disobedience. Note, if you would, their doom. And as we think about the doom of these people, I want to call your attention to verse 16. Because in verse 16, first of all, we have God's commitment to his people. What you and I need to understand is God is committed to his people. Now, I said that the relationship Israel sustained to the Lord was conditional. Their relationship was predicated on their willingness to honor his commands. Same today. Well, what about his commitment to Israel? I want you to go back with me if you would, and there are a couple of passages of Scripture I want you to look at, and it may be the case that you want to underline them. Look, look first of all at Jeremiah chapter 3. In chapter 3, here's what the prophet said on behalf of God. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return to me, says the Lord. God wanted these people to come back to him. Now, under the Mosaic law, if a man put away his wife, gave her a writing of divorcement, she went out and contracted another marital relationship, her first husband could not go and take her back because, as Moses said, that would be an abomination. And so God is saying that under the law, if a man divorced his wife and she got married to another man, she couldn't return to her first mate. Here's what God is saying. Here's the point, the application. He's saying, you've played the harlot with many lovers. You've been unfaithful to me, un, unto me. You are my wife. But listen to him, yet return to me. God was willing to take them back. Now drop down and look at verse 14. In verse 14, here's what the prophet said. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. Do you not think God wanted them to come back to him? The answer is a resounding yes. He wanted them back. He wanted them to live right. Now, turn with me if you would and look at chapter 6, verse 16. In chapter 6, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the way and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you shall find rest for your souls. Let me just say this about the old paths. Based on what God is saying to them, he's saying that my way is the good way. I promise you, put God to the test. His ways are always the right ways. They are the good ways. God's ways, they are the good ways. God's ways, they are the great ways. Again, you talk about successful living, enjoying life, having, having the kind of life that, that you go to bed at night, you don't have a guilty conscience, you're happy, you feel like you're a success. Let me tell you, that life is rooted and grounded in Jehovah God. Look at Solomon. He tried everything. Solomon came to the crashing conclusion, life is not about me, it's not about things, it's not about power, it's about living for God. Because he said, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is a whole of man. God's ways, they're good, they're great, and they are gracious. Look again at what Jeremiah said. Stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths wherein is the good way and walk therein and you shall find rest for your souls. Is it not the case that God wanted them to come back? Is that not an indication that God is a gracious God? 
Over in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah will say, Great is your faithfulness. Your compassions are new every morning. You and I, we serve a gracious God. God was willing to bestow mercy and grace on these people. What did they need to do? They needed to come back. But here's what they said. We will not walk in it. Let me tell you, when people dig their heels in and they say, I'm going to do what I want to do, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what God says, I don't care what anybody else says, I'm going to do what I want to do because it makes me happy, because it's what I feel like is right. Let me tell you what, that person is on perilous ground. And I think sometimes individuals have the idea that we can get by on less than God demands. That is not the case. John wrote in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. Now, God was committed to his people, but because they chose the wrong pathway, guess what? He was going to chastise, chastise them. So look now at verse 19. In verse 19, Jeremiah said, Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. Now look at verse 22. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people comes from the north country, and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses. As men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. God is saying to the children of Israel, look, I'm raising up the Babylonians. They're going to march in, and they're not going to show you any kind of mercy. What a difference. You have the mercy and the goodness and the graciousness of God and the cruelty and the lack of mercy that the Babylonians will show his people. The lesson is the same. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not interested in seeing individuals live in rebellion. God is not interested in seeing nations live in rebellion to him. He's not interested in seeing congregations live in rebellion to him. When people choose a course of disobedience, disaster looms. I don't care if it's an individual, a congregation, a nation. When people turn away from Almighty God, it will only bring problems. But when people honor the will of God, they will be blessed. Jeremiah pleaded with his people. The message today is this, live for God. If you want to be blessed, if you want to enjoy the blessings of a good life, do what God says. Live for him every day. Let me close by asking this question. Are you a Christian? The beauty of Christianity is summed up in John 3, 16, the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. When you do what they did in the first century, God will add you to the body of Christ. You'll become what they were, New Testament Christians. You'll belong to the body of Christ, the saved, the redeemed, the cleansed. And if you live faithfully until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2 at verse 10. If you're unfaithful, we plead with you tonight, come home. Come back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.